But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Hey everybody, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Chapel. So glad that you're here. Welcome those of you over in East Hall, those of you who are tuning in. Uh, really glad that we're able to stay connected like this. So thanks for tuning in. All right, last week we finished our three-week series that we called Simply Reimagine. If you missed one of those three messages, please go back. Uh, go to our website, our app, and catch up, because we need you to get on the same page. We want you to know what we're talking about when we use the word reimagine. And I love that word. I love it because it describes, I think, more clearly what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it has helped me in my own understanding of following Jesus. And I think it will help you the more you get into it and the more we explain it. I also love the four geometric shapes that we introduced, the square, triangle, triangle, square. And I love these because uh, every person is in one of these square or one of these geometric shapes. And every person, every person here, every person you know, whether they're Christians or non-Christians, whatever it is, the square represents uh, the way the world is supposed to be, the way God created the world to be. That first triangle is the brokenness that we all feel. And we all know that what is is not what ought to be, not only with our world, but also with us. I was just talking with somebody this past week who is uh, kind of feels like he is sliding toward atheism, but he rages against the world not being what it should be, what it could be, what it ought to be. And then that second triangle is uh, the hope that we have either that will help us become what we want to be or will help the world be what it should be. And that can be anything from getting married to having kids to being successful to getting the corner office to losing weight to the right political party being in charge to education, all kinds of stuff. What we believe here at CCC is that Jesus is the only hope. He's the only hope to actually change us individually into what we want to be, could be, should be, ought to be. And he's the only one with the power to actually restore the world to what it should be ideally. All right, so those are the four shapes. So we've been talking about those. Now we're going to move into the book of Acts. And the book of Acts uh, was written to kind of show the rhythm of the early church. And we want to look at this because the early church actually changed the world. And this is what we know. This is what historians can tell us about the early church. And listen, this is true whether you are a Christian or not a Christian. Historians can't tell us whether Jesus actually resurrected or not, but historians can tell us what was happening in the first couple of centuries after Jesus lived and died. And this is what historians will tell us, secular historians, Christian historians, everybody that there was a small group of peasants and slaves who believed that Jesus Christ was the incarnate Son of God, and that he lived and he died on a cross and he resurrected. And that small group of peasants and slaves were able to begin a sustained movement 
that actually swept across the Roman Empire. They had no political power, they had no economic means, they had no educational influence, they had no cultural authority. And yet they created a sustained kind of uh, power that swept through the Roman Empire the first two centuries and ended up sweeping millions of people into a joy and a love and a hope they had never known. That's what happened. And the question is, how? How did that happen? We're going to look at the book of Acts, which is really the only historical document that documents the very beginning of that movement. Uh, Acts was written by a physician named Luke. It's actually a sequel. Uh, Luke was both a physician and a historian. He wrote the Gospel of Luke as the first volume, and then uh, the book of Acts as the follow-up volume. In the, the Gospel of Luke, he actually answers the what question. What is Christianity about? What did Jesus come to do? And then the book of Acts is to answer the how question. How does Christianity really work its way through people and into the world? All right. So we're going to be spending 10 weeks on that. And let me start with this. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, the very first few verses, what Luke does is he describes the fuel. The fuel that will actually go into this engine that will create the sustained movement. And the reason that we're looking at Acts is because if, if this is what could happen to the world in the first couple of centuries, the question is, what could happen here in Northeast Ohio if we follow the same rhythm of the early church? So the fuel that actually fueled the engine, we're going to look at the engine in the coming weeks, but the fuel kind of was three parts. What Luke tells us is that it is something that Jesus has done and then it's something Jesus is doing. And those two things created the third thing, which is the third truth, which is that we are his witnesses. That we are his witnesses. Let me show you what I mean. In uh, Acts chapter 1, the first three verses, this is what Luke says. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke says that Jesus did something there. And that's my first point, what Jesus has done. The real genius of Christianity, the core of Christianity is this. That Christianity is based on what Jesus has done, not on what you do. Let me say that again. Christianity is based on what Jesus has done, not on what you do. Which means that Christianity is not about you primarily. It's about Jesus. And this introduces what we call the gospel. And if you are thinking in your mind, I've heard this over and over again, then let me tell you why you need to hear it one more time. I was thinking this past week, this is my epiphany this past week, that uh, all of us have kind of a, what, what's called a resting face. Uh, I don't know if you realize that's when you're not thinking about anything, when you're not smiling for a camera, when you don't really pay attention and you just let your face go into its natural state. And some of you like your resting face and some of you don't like your resting face. 
but you have a resting face. The thing that hit me this past week is that there is a, a prescribed resting state for the human being. And what you were made, your resting state as a human being, you were made to be filled with joy. Did you know that? When we talk about the square, about when God created a human being, what he intended was for that human being from head to toe to be filled with inexpressible joy. And to the extent that you are experiencing that joy right now is the extent, the depth of which this truth has sunk into you even today. That's why you need to hear it again. And the gospel is just this, that the gospel is based, this good news is based not on what you do, which means that Christianity is not primarily about you being a good person. Christianity is based on something that Jesus has done. And what Luke says is that Jesus did two things. He suffered, and then he rose again with many proofs. He suffered, and he rose again. Now, the first thing is he suffered, and the question is why? Why did Jesus suffer? Now, every gospel, one-third by weight of every gospel, is about the suffering and death of Jesus, which is wild if each gospel is supposed to be like a biography. You hardly ever have a biography that centers on the last few days of someone's life, but every gospel does. The question is, why did Jesus suffer? And the answer is that uh, being a good person and saying I'm sorry is not enough. Being a good person and saying I'm sorry is not going to be enough. And I say that, and let me just kind of unpack that. If I were to go out into any neighborhood here in Hudson or in the surrounding area, knock on a door and say, hey, listen, what makes you okay with God, do you think? The vast majority of people would say the same thing. I'm a pretty good person. Everybody thinks they're a pretty good person. You think you're a pretty good person. I think I'm a pretty good person. And then if you are pressed, you will also admit that you are not perfect. Right? Everybody will admit they're not perfect, which is a soft way of saying that you do bad things. <laughs> right? That you're a good person who occasionally does bad things. Now, what is true about every one of us is that we tend to condemn, roundly condemn other people for doing the same thing that we have done ourselves. Right? I mean, <laughs> one of my pet peeves is, you know, and you've heard it before, is when somebody cuts into traffic, when they zoom up and they squeeze their way in. I hate that. I right? don't do that. I've done it. But I always had a good reason. That's the way everybody, that's the way all of us work. When, you know, we have been selfish, we've been self-centered, we've been judgmental, we've been intolerant, we've been all the things that we hate in other people, but we have a reason, and they don't, right? And this is the thing about suffering. You ever have, uh, you ever see like an athlete or a celebrity tweet out something that was offensive to people, and then they try to walk it back? And they, they tweet out, listen, I'm sorry if I offended somebody, please, I'm sorry, right? And it's never enough. Like people lose their minds. And they're so mad at that celebrity or that athlete. And the reason is because when somebody offends somebody else or when somebody, let's say, sins, there is a residue that's created that must be accounted for. Like if you uh, commit a crime, you, you, any crime, and you go before a judge and you say, listen, I want you to know, judge, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect. I promise I'll never do it again. I'm sorry. The judge, if she is worth her salt in any way, will say, I appreciate that. 
but there's still a price you have to pay because crime creates a residue. What the Bible teaches is this, that the Bible calls it sin, and sin is a crime against the universe. Sin is a crime against God. And that crime, that sin, creates this residue that must be accounted for for justice to be met. And that's why Jesus suffered. What Christianity teaches is that you have created this residue from your sin, from being a uh, not a perfect person, which is that soft way of saying that you do bad things, and that residue needed to be paid for, and that Jesus suffered not for his own residue, but for yours and for mine. And because of that, then Jesus opens up the opportunity for God to come into our lives and begin that process of restoring us because we are restored in our relationship with God. That's why Jesus suffered. Then the question is, why did he rise again? Of course, Luke says he rose with many proofs. <laughs> a lot of people will think that, you know, the first century, they believed that Jesus resurrected because they were very gullible, very naive. But if you read the accounts in the Gospels, no one expected Jesus to resurrect. Least of all, the disciples. They had to be shown over and over Again, but the question is, why did Jesus resurrect? The answer is, anyone can tell you that they have suffered for you to pay off your debt. But the only way you know that they had the authority to do that and the power to do that is if they were actually able to come back and tell you. And that's what Jesus resurrects with power to convince us that he had the authority to do what he said he would do which is to pay the price for your sin and mine. So that's what Jesus has done. But Luke says something interesting. He says that what Jesus began to do, and that means that Jesus is continuing to do work. Right? And this is really, really important if you are a Christian, that Jesus didn't just die on a cross, resurrect, and he's done, and you receive him that one time. And this is why I love the word reimagine. What it means is that, you know, right after verse 8, which is what Paul Turner read on screen, uh, that we are his witnesses, right after verse 8, Jesus ascends to heaven to get his rightful place at the right hand of the throne of God. And the reason that Jesus ascends, according to John chapter 16, is that Jesus said, I must ascend so that the Holy Spirit can come. Jesus, when he ascended, he continued to do his work. And when he ascends, it doesn't mean that he's no longer here. It means that he is here everywhere, that he is all around here. And one of the things that Christianity teaches is that the Holy Spirit is always trying to do work. When you came this morning and you come hoping to uh, worship, hoping to, you're not hoping just that, the, the music will be something that you like. What you're hoping for is that the Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus will continue, will, that he will do something through the worship to you. When you come, hopefully, you're not just hoping that I will speak a message that is at least interesting enough to keep you awake. What you're hoping for is that the Holy Spirit will use what I say to actually do something inside of you that needs to be done, that only God can do. That's what reimagine is all about. The longer I'm a Christian, the, longer I, the more I feel Jesus moving into different parts of my life 
and saying, Joe, this needs to change if you are going to become what I want you to be, if you're going to ever be really restored to what you were created to be. And if you've been a Christian any length of time, you know that too, that Jesus' work was done on the cross, but he is still doing it. This little group of peasants and slaves were so convinced of those two things, that Jesus suffered and rose again, that he had, that he had done something and was still doing something, that they became his witnesses. Now listen, to do anything, to change anything, requires power, willpower, economic power, political power. These slaves and peasants had none of that. So the question is, what kind of power did they have? First thing that's interesting to me about verse 8 is that Jesus tells the, this little group of people that they are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. What Jesus was saying is, I am giving you something that is true. And it's true not just for you, but for every single person you know and every single person who draws breath it is for them as well. It has become popular in our culture to talk about things that work for us, but not necessarily for everyone. And if you think that Christianity is something that works for you, but not, is not necessarily true for other people, there is no power there. I want you to know I am not a Christian because it works for me. If I was a Christian because it worked for me, I wouldn't be a Christian very long. Because there are times in my life, and there are probably times in yours, where it doesn't feel like Christianity is working at all. It doesn't feel good to be a Christian. I am a Christian because I'm convinced that it's true. And I'm convinced that it's true, not just for me, but for you. And for everybody you know. And for everybody you don't know. And everybody who draws breath. This is true. Right? That's what these peasants and slaves were convinced of. But I need you to know something else. And let me try to explain it like this. One of my, uh, my favorite TV shows is the show Undercover Boss. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, I really enjoy it. It's, uh, I'll give you the kind of the framework. Uh, there's a person who's a boss who's a CEO or the owner of a company. Usually it's a large company. And then they go undercover, they get in a disguise so they can kind of mill around with the workers and find out what's really going on in their company. During that time, they usually meet some employees and they hear their story. And then at the end of the show, they sit in a chair, they reveal themselves, and then they, they will, you know, if, if the employee was a good employee, they will reward that employee. And that's the fun part. My all-time favorite episode, and I think I've seen uh, all of them, <laughs> right. But my all-time favorite episode is an episode with um, a guy who is uh, the CEO and owner of a sports equipment chain of stores. And the employee that he was talking to was a, a woman named Angel. And during the, the show, you had found out Angel is just a wonderful employee, wonderful person. Right? But she had gone through some difficult times and she had struggled some. And then at one point she had told him she was actually living with her children in a homeless shelter because uh, she couldn't pay her rent and she had, was trying to dig her way out of a hole and all that. So at the end of the show, what happens is they're sitting on, on high stools like this. And the, uh, the owner and CEO, he's kind of a big guy. <clears throat> and he was talking to Angel and 
he says, Angel, Angel, you were wonderful. You're just a wonderful employee, and I, and I loved working with you. And I, listen, I want to make you an assistant manager. And, and that comes with a $14,000 raise, right? And as soon as he says this, like Angel, she gets, she gets really emotional. She kind of comes off her chair a little bit, and she goes, oh, oh, and she starts to cry. She goes, no, really? All right, he said, really? And she, he says, yes, and we're going to give you a $14,000 raise. And then he, uh, he's a very tenderhearted guy. And he starts to say, listen, and I, I can't bear that you go to a homeless shelter with your kids. And I, I don't want you to do that anymore. In fact, in fact, you're not going to even go back there tonight. I have, I'm going to give you $250,000 so you can buy a house. Right? And she comes unglued. Right? She starts to sob, yell, sob. She, she falls on the ground. You know, she's that kind of person. So she's on the ground. And this, I told you, the CEO is a big guy. And he kind of, he gets down there with her. So he's on the ground with her and like going, it's okay. And she's just cannot believe that this has happened. All right? This is what struck me. Nothing had happened yet. She didn't have the $14,000 raise. She didn't have the $250,000. And yet she was coming unglued she was so full of joy that she could not contain herself and she collapsed on the ground. Why? Because she believed. She believed that what he was telling her was true. And she walks outside and she calls her kids right away and she says, we're not going to the homeless shelter, not tonight, not ever again. We're going to have a house, right? She was a witness. That's what it means to be a witness. That's what I want to ask. If you would ever sit in a chair like this and Jesus Christ was to sit over here and Jesus was to look at you and talk to you, how would you respond? If Jesus were to say to you, listen, I know everything about you, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever, and it, as soon as he would say that, your eyes would go down. Right? You would look down and Jesus would say, no, no, look at me. Look at my eyes. Listen to me. Every single thing that you've ever done, I forgive. Everything is wiped away. Everything. Look at me. Look at me. And I love you more than you have ever dared to dream. Believe that. If you believe that, you would come undone you would fall on the ground and begin to weep, right? I started looking up, just in Ephesians, I was reading Ephesians, and there's so much, I mean, it's such a great book. But this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, if Jesus sat here and he said, I'm going to lavish you with my grace, and you felt that, you would absolutely, come, you would cry out like angel did. Chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, sitting here, would say to you, my riches are your riches. You are wealthy beyond your imagination. If 250,000 can make angel collapse on the ground, then what would all the riches of the universe do to you if you really believed that? And then finally, chapter 3. Paul says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the truth. The more you believe that, the deeper that goes into your heart, the more you will be filled with joy. But it also means you will be a witness. Angel, the first thing she did was to go out, call her kids and say, everything has changed. Everything has changed because I believe Listen, if you really believe that Jesus Christ would sit across from you and say, look me in my eyes and would tell you even though you are more broken than you have ever really admitted to anybody, I love you more deeply than you have ever dared to dream. I will lavish my grace on you. My riches are your riches. Everything that you have deeply desired, you can find true in me. There's a small group of peasants and slaves in the first century that believed that Jesus Christ was the incarnate Son of God who lived and died on a cross and resurrected. They believed that Jesus had suffered for them and risen from the dead, and they believed that he was still working. And that Jesus told them to go and be his witnesses because this was true not just for them but for everybody. And so they went. And the world has never been the same. Listen, I believe that if if Jesus really gets a hold of each one of us, that not only will we never be the same, but Northeast Ohio will never, ever be the same. That's what we're praying for. That's the fuel that fueled the engine of the early church and change the world. Let's have it fuel us today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I come to you and I am so, so grateful. Uh, We are about to take communion now, where we take something that's tangible to remind us of this great truth. Not unlike uh, the check that that boss would give to Angel to give her to make good on the promise, so we hold something in our hand that reminds us that you have made good on this promise.
that through your suffering, we can be forgiven. Through your resurrection, we have been given power. Thank you. I pray that you'd fill us with your love in such a way and convince us so far deep down that you would fill us with joy and then make us your witnesses to everyone we come across. We pray this in your name. Amen.